Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Patch Cape podcast. Today, we have another guest, Chris Park, who is a druid, beekeeper, educator, um, and all sorts around nature. Um, so welcome, Chris, today. How's your day been? I've had a good day so far. Yeah, it's been all right. I've been, <laughs> I've been building with round timber, a rectangular house, so it's a bit perplexing. I'm working at the moment at an outdoor education centre near Oxford. It's called Hill End. And it's been an outdoor education centre since 1921. And there was a guy called Lord Fennell, who was South African, I think. But he lived in around Oxford. He bought this whole piece of woodland next to Whiteham Woods near Oxford and dedicated it to to outdoor education, classrooms outdoors. And there's, there's these lovely old black and white photos of all these kids in the you know 1920s school uniform sat on the grass having a lesson (laughs) and since then this place has just uh, gone from strength to strength I suppose and it's a lovely staff there and Whiteham Woods is really it's like a university Oxford University Woods and it's really mature woodland and so they're able to uh, get like oak posts and chestnut from the here and there and hazel for the wattling and willow for this and that and so so the building is is a lovely sort of site specific building because it's made of the timbers from the place which is a really lovely feeling to build something like that i've, I've got a bit of a history with uh ancient technologies and experimental archaeology and natural crafts and that kind of thing so i love i love getting my hands and body into some physical work from time to time and every now and again someone asks me to build something whether it's a reconstructed Iron Age roundhouse at a, you know, an Iron Age site, or or, it's a, or an outdoor classroom in a school, or a straw bale building, or a mental health charity, or whatever it might be. So that's been my morning. It's, it's kind of a, it's trying to get round timbers to fit a, as kind of a rectangular space. <laughs> I've not, seen I've seen those Celtic um roundhouses uh with the like the grassy roofs and stuff um and you wouldn't even see it like in the forest they'd be hidden you know but they look amazing yes yeah they do don't they and they feel amazing they're great to live in so and grounding I, yeah i do a bit of thatching from time to time help friends that are thatchers and of course you know thatch to the iron age houses and things this particular building is is a hybrid it's not going to have a thatched roof it's going to have a green roof it's like a modern you know so we're putting boards on the the rafters and then it's going to have some membranes and it's going to have you know sedums and it's just going to be a flowering roof that wow. but I, but my house here has got a, a green roof and a few buildings around here have two and it's, and it's great for bees also and you know a load of chives up there so the kids love to get up there and eat the chives <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah it's nice to have a, a living roof yeah and how yeah. does it not get damp then you know there's a waterproof membrane okay yeah which is sometimes rubber sometimes uh like a pvc sheet like a dampproof membrane sheet depends mm. on the budget you know what, what you put up there and yeah. uh and all the water just sort of runs goes down through the whatever you've got on there through the turf or the sedums or whatever it's growing and then runs down to the to the edge and did you, was that house bought or did you build it? Which one? The one you're in. I built it. Yeah, I built it. Okay. That's really cool. And how did you learn how to do this? Was this from a young age? 
Oh, uh, I suppose so. I've been building since I was uh, a child. <laughs> I've been building stuff. Had a garden. You know, my grandparents had an orchard. So I was always constructing things. I did a degree in sculpture at art college. And so I've always been quite handy, I suppose, putting things together and quite practical in that sense. That's cool. Um, and the bees, where did the bees come along? Did they just come along to you or how did that happen? <laughs> oh, so, I suppose so. Yeah. Well, I first met a beehive when I was at art college. A girlfriend's dad kept bees and he had a lovely small holding down in Sussex and we, you know, so we used to spend the holidays there and things like that and help him out and... and he had a hive of bees and I and I always kind of look forward to the time when I might keep bees but I would just never settle down I, you know I went to live here I went to live there traveled around got involved in druid camps and building stone circles and traveling to France and herding goats over there and you know traveling up to the Orkneys there and and, and looking after sea turtles in Greece and you know as a young man I just wasn't settled I was looking for adventure uh, and experience and fun and all those things and as I got older I eventually settled on a farm and I'm still here on a farm in in South Oxfordshire on the Wiltshire border near the Uffington White Horse near the lovely chalk Bronze Age horse it's quite a famous one that some people say is a dragon and and, and it's above Dragon Hill and uh, and on the Ridgeway so Avery's not far away and the the Upper Thames Valley is not far away. Swindon's 10 miles that way. Oxford's 20 miles that way. And I sort of settled here. Not not intentionally. I didn't intentionally settle here either. I just started living here at, at, because I was working as a tree planter. I had been living in Wales. And I came to England. And I've been tree planting in Wales. And you've got like 12 pence a tree. You know, there's a lot of piecework in Wales. And then here you've got like 25 pence a tree. <laughs> so like, like suddenly my uh, wages doubled and I began planting trees here and living here. And then a few other people came and went, sort of lived in and around the place. And I was itinerant at the beginning. So I wasn't really ready to have any bees or any kind of livestock. I was moving around still doing the tree planting season in the winter and traveling around in the summertime or staying down in Sussex with friends, or, or travelling to camps and festivals and, th- and things like that. And then uh, then I kind of settled down, it just kind of happened. And a Druid friend moved in, and we, we were studying the stars. We would study many different things over different years. You know, we might, would research you know, plant law and tree law and animal spirits and, and minerals and all these different things. We, we, and we'd have like um, like druid meetings and get, uh, put our heads together and figure out who discovered what about this particular gemstone, you know, and then we'd make a ritual around it or, or, or we'd go through lots of different herbs. And then one phase of that work for 15 months, we uh, every dark moon, we decided to attune to a different star in the sky. And we decide, you know, at the end of, well, no, actually, we had these 15 stars that we decided we were going to work through in a particular order from an ancient manuscript. And 
we decided to do it at the dark of the moon because it'd be easier to see the star, you know, rather than at full moon, you might not see it. Mm. So we thought we'd have a chance of seeing that star if it was the dark of the moon and at new moon. And then we'd spend a month, you know, researching and learning about the physics of the star and the, the folklore and, and from different cultures. And then we'd meet and we'd, you know, we'd all share what we'd learnt. And then we'd go outside into the sacred grove. So being a tree planter over the years, you know, at the end of the season, you also have a bag full of trees that are left over. <laughs> so we, over the years, um, uh, we planted a sacred grove here with many different trees. And it's like a copse, really. And it's, it's lovely because, uh, you know, we started planting it like 23 years ago. So it's really just coming nicely established now. And... Uh, so we'd go out to the sacred grove and light the fire sometimes and then we'd do a little ritual and attune to the star and try and locate it in the sky and all those kind of things. And, and then at some point along that journey through those 15 months, we began to view the night sky as one giant domed beehive, you know, like an ancient skep, an old-fashioned straw wickerwork hive. Like in, you know, like the the story of the Arabian tent when the the holes in the tent are the kind of stars shining through the canvas. Uh, so we started to look at the sky like that, and the, and these stars were kind of we worked through these stars in a kind of spiral fashion. I don't know if you know much about straw skeps, but the lip work skeps are sort of stitched up in a kind of spiral fashion. So we were playing with all that kind of mythology and and the birds' muses, as Virgil wrote about bees, and looking at all these ancient. So we we began sort of then we began sort of looking into more sort of bee folklore and looking at the stars as bees in the night sky, like the moon is the hive or, you know, and he's playing around with these different, different bits of folklore. And JJ said, Oh, he used to keep bees. And that he gave up when the Varroa mite uh, came to Britain. And then uh, he was keeping bees at Highgrove. And he used to joke that he used to have royal, royal honey and all these things. And he said, oh, I've got these old hives left over and you can you can have them. I'll donate them to you in the bee grove. He started calling the place, you know, the bee grove or the grove of the bee. Uh, and then uh, he gave me some old books. One of them was a really inspiring book by a woman called Eva Crane, who started the Bee Research Association uh, in the Chiltern Hills near, near where I lived. She's, she kind of settled there for a bit and then she ended up in Cardiff and this book was just all about the archaeology of bees and ancient styles of beehive and because you know I was living here building ancient houses I'd lived in iron age conditions before I came here for uh, what seven weeks as a, as a volunteer for a project to live just as iron age people lived and that, that you know that's a whole other saga of my life but that, through that project I got really into the you know through the ancient ways and and, and the wisdom in, in the old skills and old crafts and of course the old stories i was learning anyway through the druid tradition and i was i became a druid not not to kind of relive the past but because it's a i thought it was a really lovely contemporary nature-based spirituality that had a lot of heart in it that was you know seemed to be what the world needed and definitely what i needed in this highly mechanized world and that but then through that iron age experience or sort of living in the iron age i became really into the you know we can live you know really close to the earth and be happy we can live 
and build our houses just with what's available in our, you know, within a mile radius and be comfortable and thrive. You know, if we have a strong community and we, and we, and we know what we're doing. And, and, and so that was a wonderful experience. And I got really into the, all of the sort of natural crafts and natural technologies and ancient technologies and primitive crafts. And then, uh, so that book was really, really inspiring to see a person who documented all of these ancient styles of beehives and then to look at the modern beehive and think, well, why, why are we doing it like this? You know, what? surely there were some babies thrown out with the bathwater when the movable frame hive came along and, and there's lots of money spinning, lots of, you know, it's the industrial revolution and, and so many things are marketed at people. And, uh, you know, we, we start to outsource our food and all, all sorts of things happen then. We start to outsource our clothing and, and, and yeah, the world changed in many ways didn't it? then. And, and so, uh, so then he gave me some old kit. He gave me his old suit and his old bee smoker and these amazing books that really inspired me. And I said, uh, you know, and I thought, right, I want to keep bees in the way that ancient British people and Irish people kept, kept bees. You know, I want to keep bees in the ways that the, that the ancestors of these lands and, and, and acknowledge those wisdom traditions and acknowledge that, that skill and understand. And I couldn't find anybody that was doing it. I couldn't find anybody to learn from. And I even contacted, you know, local beekeeping associations and the British Beekeeping Association. And they sent me to these old, wizened old bee masters, you know. <laughs> but I just kind of sat at their feet and, and kind of just kind of memorised everything they told me. <laughs> and, they, and they generally pointed me towards really old books and really old manuscripts. And one of those books this year is having its quad centenary. It's having its... 400th anniversary it's a book called the feminine monarchy written by a vicar you know m- most of the early books on beekeeping were, were written by vicars or clergymen and not just in the english language but in you know french language and other places as well and the uh in this book i thought uh i just kind of read it from cover to cover it's really difficult to read because it's in uh, ancient it was written in 1623 this particular edition first written in 1609 but revised and made bigger and better and right at the heart of it this author charles butler who was born in high wickham i went to school in high wickham so i had this instant kind of um connection with him and, and i first put some bees into a into a bee skep in 2009 and he first published this book in 1609 and so it's really interesting connections happening and i just read that book from cover to cover and went to started making skeps and i just had this real sense i had this real epiphany that i just needed to start keeping bees in these skeps but it, uh, i realized actually i could i met like a two people that had done it for a season experimentally and i heard of another guy that did it in an apple orchard somewhere and and i just um i thought well this needs to happen again why is no one doing this still you know it's not just because it's the heritage of beekeeping and not because it's, you know, it's a, a lovely thing to do, but also, you know, I'm sure I was convinced I knew that there were some benefits to the bees somehow. I kind of felt like I had to do it. It like became my mission. And so I did as much research as I could and started making skeps. And then um, I, I thought, well, I better, I better contact the local beekeepers because you have an etiquette as a beekeeper to keep your bees healthy and your bees are going to be mixing with other people's bees and any disease they might get will spread and beekeeping in a skep is illegal in a lot of european countries 
like like you know germany and, and other places and and it's illegal in many states of america to keep bees on what we call fixed comb beekeeping where you don't have a, a frame that you can lift up and scrutinize the comb and manipulate the colony and then put it back in they're going to spin the honey out you just it's just all in one container and the comb is attached to the ceiling or the walls of that container and actually most bees in the world are still kept in that way which uh, surprised me that most bees in the world are still kept in some kind of container that might be a log or a, or a basket or or bark hive or, or a cylinder um, ceramic cylinder or a straw hive or a coiled basket or a wicker basket covered in some kind of composite material and there ought to be a name actually there ought to be more kind of like umbrella term for all these styles of basket i don't know uh, hive i suppose because some are logs and some are ceramic but fixed comb beekeeping i suppose and uh so there was a this suddenly into my lap came this you know more than a lifetime's sense of purpose of researching these ancient styles of beekeeping and um and, and developing them to sort of modern problems in beekeeping like the varroa mite and, and, and other other diseases and, and, and viruses and because it was illegal in america and and some parts of europe not all states of america you know like alaska you can do it and, and missouri for some reason you know uh, and uh but there are lots of interstate laws in america and there are lots of sort of european laws here in, in europe i thought if I just did it and the local beekeepers found out about this, you know, because I had hair sort of down to my, you know, not to my waist, but I had long hair then, long sort of messy hair, wild hair. And I thought, well, if they heard about this long-haired, wild-haired, druid guy keeping bees on a skep in an organic farm, that might be quite worrying for them. So I joined the local association. And they went down the transparent route you know, and I just declared what I wanted to do. And I said, you know, uh, and I was surprisingly really well supported. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, the chairman of one of the local associations at the time was a man called Ron Hoskins, who when I met him, he'd been treatment free. You know, he was like the only person I knew that would never treated his bees for with chemicals and miticides in, in those days. Everybody was doing it and, and you, you, know, you kind of expected to do it. But he wasn't, he was, he was uh, breeding these kind of varroa resistant bees. And so I had all the confidence I needed to to uh, acquire uh, uh, some bees from Ron and then put them here. And, and what, what were his bees inside? Him? They were in conventional hives. He did, he was also using some top bar hives to, to generate some uh, virgin combs and wild comb because miticides and chemicals are recycled within the foundation that, that beekeepers will buy and then put in their hive for the bees to draw their comb on and so he was also experimenting with drawing wild comb and using that to get a kind of a cleaner wax to give mm. the bees like the wari he wasn't he was using like the the kenyan top bar hives okay yeah and also using starter strips and some 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 deep deep framed um, hives, so that was a great confidence boost from the start. Suddenly there was this you know you sort of 
look at beekeeping from the outside and you think oh, look at this these associations you think they're, they're all kind of a you know throwing in chemicals all the time and then but actually to mix with them you know i, I became really active in in beekeeping history groups and the beekeeping history trust and and i've met a lot of old beekeepers now and, and, and a lot of them say oh you know chris i've been told to do so many different things over the years you know it's 90 year old beekeeper tell me i've been told to do so many different things over the years i've been sold so many different things over the years and marketed to so many different things and there are different fads every year he said chris now i don't know i don't do anything with my bees and they're better than ever you know and, uh, bees look after themselves don't they they've been around they for, do. i think the more for... you leave them alone they're fine like yeah no i'm like can we just stop touching them years. all the time <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it's quite it's it's nice. I, I do keep bees. I keep a lot of bees in skeps and fixed comb things, but I do keep bees in movable frame hives as well. It's, it's, it's nice to have that relationship with them and to be able to look at them and, and, and have that, you know, it's for our benefit really, isn't it? And, uh, but yeah, but they've been around, what, 120 million years, their oldest ancestor. Some people will say older than that. That's a long time, isn't it? 120 million years. They've been uh, just combating every single pest, disease, predator, weather climate change mass extinction that they've had to deal with you know they've successfully adapted their experts at adaptation bees yeah. and we think we come along we think oh you know here comes a variomite oh we need to throw hard chemicals and miticides and pesticides and phds at them you know and and, and but actually there's wisdom in just trusting nature and just trusting that bees will adapt and they have, and Ron knew that. You know, he knew that. He he saw that in the behaviour of some of his colonies. So he bred from those colonies, and the bees were actively uncapping the sealed brood and pulling out the juvenile varroa and pulling out, you know, killing them. And and these were the colonies that he that he wasn't treating, you know. And then he so he stopped treating completely. And that was over ten years ago. And uh, he's he's getting on a bit now. <laughs> he survived. He survived two heart attacks and he and he's also died and came back to life again. And he's had his, his apiary set fire to and, what? and you know, but he's still going he's still going. And so 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 I was really inspired by Ron and, and and he also gave me all this information about you know indigenous style hives and you know hives from around Europe with faces on and you know and log hives and things like that. And do you so, find with your bees now in the different, yeah. say the skep compared to the movable frame? Do you see more varroa in that, or like, is there any difference for you? I treat all bees the same, you know. They're um, whatever the bees are in here. On one level, I think it doesn't really matter what bees are in; it's the spirit with which they're kept that's more important. The bees don't mind what they're in, do they? They, as long as they are, they've got room and they're warm enough and they're protected from the elements and they're protected from predators and pests. Bees are happy, you know, and uh, and as long as they're not manipulated too much and. and yeah. So every colony here is treatment free. Always has been. Well, no, for the first year I threw a bit of icing sugar on them because someone said that's a good idea. It will help them. It will encourage, it will encourage <laughs> them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've thing. actually seen it. I actually have seen that. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's supposed to encourage them to then groom each other and pull mites off of each other because they're taking the they're, they're clean, cleaning each other up. Yeah. And and uh, but I didn't bother that after that. You know, I did it once. I thought I was not going to make any difference. I soon realised that the bees have got verve and vigour and strength and power to deal with the romite themselves i just saw that you know witness that you can tell that can't you and and i did put a, a few essential oils on a floor you know like wintergreen and thyme and things like that and someone gave me a spray of homeopathic varroa mite something or other 
and I, you know, for, and I did that for the first season, and soon realised that bees are strong. You know, they don't they don't need that. They're so strong, yeah. And I mean, do you get weak colonies, of course, but but these bees were strong, and every colony here is treatment free. Every colony here is allowed to swarm, and they're never fed sugar. You know, they're never fed uh, any kind and of. Would you catch the swarm? Would you go out? And ideally, catch yeah, yeah. So that's ideally that's. So you need to stay at home now with the swarm season. <laughs> like me, I'm in the yeah, yard every yeah. day. I'm like, when are they going? <laughs> you kind of draw a closer circle around yourself, don't you, when you start beekeeping, uh, and especially if you're, if you're letting them swarm. But I started up bait hives, and and some of them, left. it was pissing down with rain here for like most of this month. And and la- last week I went to ca- collect a swarm from this really young oak tree in the rain. You know, I'd never done that before. I've done, I had done it in the rain before, but I'd never done it in such sodding, dripping wet weather. These poor bees, you know. But so, but I've gotten back here, and then I was just walking around the hedge. We had we've had quite a lot of losses this year, and uh, countrywide there've been a lot of losses this year. I went to the the spring convention up in Shropshire uh, just a few weeks back, and there's a lot of spring losses, and it's happening. It's sort of increasing. It seems to be increasing over the years. And so I think everyone's keen for a swarm this season. <laughs> so I whizzed out to get that one. And I haven't noticed any swarm yet here, but I, set up, I do set up bait hives around. But I have seen like a, a bit of trodden down grass in the hedge below my apiary. And I'm just starting to get, oh, someone, someone there's my bee swarm, is someone coming next to them? So I think that's probably just my creative imagination going. But you never know, because, you know, there be, suddenly there are beekeepers, more and more beekeepers all the time. 13 years ago I was sat here and I didn't know a, a beekeeper I, you know maybe a few villages away there was oh there's a one in the military college there's a guy called Toffer who I made him a skep uh and it's the first really nice skep that I ever made you know I've made a couple made three they weren't that good but when you make one for someone else you do a really good job so I've made him a really nice skep and what's the process of making one like is it a tough job for a newbie <laughs> yeah it is tricky if you've never done it before you know, I don't show many people my first skep. <laughs> <laughs> Only <I'd>, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's tricky, but if you've got a good teacher, you know, I, I teach a lot. And uh, I make sure people do a much better job than I did when I made my first one. <laughs> and what, is it straw? Yeah, yeah, they can be wicker work as well. Okay. But they're covered in some kind of composite material, like a cow dung mixed with sand or wood ash or subsoil. I think wattle and daub. So again, it's like an ancient, it's like an ancient roundhouse, really. A, a yeah. wicker skep, which is called an alviary, often, or alviari, or just a hive. You know, four hundred years ago, they were just called hives because that's what, well, you know, that's what, what it was. Interestingly, in in Welsh, one word for a beehive is a is a tea uh, guanan, which is a bee house, but the other one is a is a is a kuch guanan, which means a bee boat. Mm. And if you think about a coracle, which is a wickerwork frame, you know, quite dome or flat bottom. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just interesting that they call it a bee boat, like a boat for bees. Uh, yeah, so some of them are wickerwork and plastered, and I teach skep making through the charity bees for development.org uh, brilliant charity that support some of the poorest p- 
people in the world to become beekeepers and you know some of the success stories are like a you know an ethiopian child bride will be sold off and have a few kids and have a terrible time and come come home you know sort of five years later seven years later and she can't remarry in that culture uh but she can become a beekeeper. Bees for development can train people up in that country to train her to become a beekeeper. And then she suddenly has status in her community and she has a, a, a job and she can feed her children. And honey is keeps its value. Wherever you are in the world, people pay a premium for honey because, it, because it's so good. It's goodness. It's medicine. It's sweetness. It's nutrition. It's health. And all the other bee products around that, you know, the brood and the, and the and the royal jelly and, and the pollen and the propolis and, and the wax. It's uh, all over the world. Honey was primarily prized as a medicine before it was like a food source. It was like, it was a, a precious food source. You know, food is medicine, isn't it? But it was a precious uh, commodity. And yeah, so brilliant charity, Beast for Development. Check them out. And you can come and learn to make a skep on a I course. Love to. Charity at the same time. And I also run a course on skep beekeeping here once a year where we drive the bees and people do a bit of theory and a bit, do a bit of practical. I think in Irish it's a skiob. Is, is, it might be a, I mean, that's one of the words for a skep is a skiob, which just means basket. Ooh. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a Viking influence word cause, or if it's originally Irish. I'm not sure because the word skep is Anglo-Saxon. Skepper is, is an Anglo-Saxon word. It relates to the word cup and, and cap. And ship, you know, these all containers and a, a, and a coop and a skip that you throw your rubbish in. You know, so that, that cup, cap, cop, skep, skiob, um, keep, and therefore beekeeper. So there's a lovely link between a bee skep yeah. and a beekeeper. And, uh, uh, yes. Yeah, but most, most skeps are, are straw. Most skeps are kind of coiled straw and they're kind of stitched up with like a. Traditionally, it would be split bramble or split willow. And most skeps I teach with with a rattan cane because it's really uniform and forgiving and easy for people to learn with. Mm. And have you been doing apitherapy as well, like actually studying it? Yes, I've been studying with Dr. Stefan Stangasiu and his apitherapy course, uh, which is brilliant, really good course, you know. And if you're if you're a beekeeper, it's a kind of no brainer just to kind of you know go the extra mm. mile and and start learning and practicing apitherapy. Mm. So if it can become a way of life, you know. We've built a a bee bedroom here, a bee house, where you can lie down on top of the bees and listen to them humming beneath you, and you get the sort of micro vibrations and just feel them there. But when you when you step into that room, it's like a it's a glorified shed, basically, but it's made to uphold the pristine quality of the air that's in there and the purity of the air that's in there. There's no, there's no uh, chemical kind of varnishes and it's just natural wood, a bit of linseed oil, and there's no uh, synthetic insulation. It's just sheep's wool in between the, you know, the, the wood and the walls. And you walk in there and you get this, you just suddenly breathe in this sweet spicy warm air and it's just amazing and you and you, just, and you lie down on top of the bees and you, you, we put in these face masks that you can breathe the beehive air in directly mm-hmm. in a concentrated way and it's just so relaxing and restorative and healing and, and meditative in there every single bee is surrounded by a negative ion 
And, you know, if we're on a computer for a lot or if we're wearing welly boots a lot or if we're, you know, scuffing around on a nylon carpet or floor tiles or whatever, you know, there's so many ways that you accrue um, uh, sort of like positive, if you get a positive charge in your body. And uh, cats love sort of negatively charged places, apparently. And so the, the, a place, a natural place that will create negative charges like a rushing mountain stream or a waterfall will create these negative particles and they, and they will neutralize any positive particles in your body. And if you build up too much positive positive particles in your body, you get diseased, you get angry, and you can even get a court pardon in some parts of the world where these are like the Saharan wind is really positively charged. It's dumps down onto onto Mediterranean countries and people go crazy and they can get a court pardon if they committed a crime during that ill wind because they weren't themselves, they were affected by these by these ions. So the bees just being around bees themselves. Mm. We are becoming calmer and and healthier. Mm. Pliny the Elder, that, that famous Latin scholar who came to Britain, who came to the Isles of Britain and said the the ancient tribes here live to 120 years old because they drink a little bit of mead every day he said that and <laughs> so, so i'm i'm testing that <laughs> testing that testing <laughs> do you uh, add anything into your mead any flavors or flowers mead is medicine he said so plenty of the elder said ubi apis ibi salis which means wherever there are bees there is health and mm-hmm. it's so true and beekeepers live the longest even and we do yeah we put uh i teach mead making as well through the charity bees for development and and just to friends and the, one of the byproducts of fixed comb beekeeping so when you've got bees in a brood box that's separated with a queen excluder from the super so, so you just get honey in the super and then you take that off that honey is just honeycomb generally you might get a tiny little bit of bee bread up there but not a lot you just get honeycomb but bees in a fixed comb situation whether it's a man, you know, or a woman, you know, take, putting their arm in the back of a log hive and taking out a piece of comb, or whether it's me or someone in England, Ireland, keeping bees in a skep and cutting out one of the combs, uh, that could be all capped honey on one side, and on the other side it could be, you know, honey and a lot of pollen, a lot of bee bread or pergo, which is really good nutrition and really strong medicine it's got like 43 of the amino acids that we need in it and so when you make that into a mead you get these pollen rich meads that are full of all the other medicines of a hive and there's a guy called harold booner who who writes about herbs and things and he wrote a book on on brewing and sacred herbal i can't remember the name of it something like sacred and healing beers or something like that and he 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 coined the phrase. I think he coined this phrase as a complete hive mead, you know, like a mead from uh, this fixed comb environment where you're going to get all of the medicines into the mead. You can recreate it, can't you, by putting the other things in? So just the skep mead here is different from you know the conventional hive mead, but also we add herbs, so it becomes a methaglin. And if you heard that, that word, a methaglin, sounds lethal, doesn't it? And it's a, but it's a it's a tonic wine essentially. Methaglin is mead infused with herbs, or so it is herbal medicine uh, preserved in mead as well. It's the other way around. So a methaglin is a Welsh word. Again, it has a Welsh root from methug, methagon, a doctor, medic, physician, and chlin, which is a liquor, 
which is similar to the word lake. And so for, I like to play around with the etymology. So it's like a healing liquor or the physician's lake or the doctor's drink, you know, so very simply medicine. In English, we say honey. It comes from the Anglo-Saxon word honig, which just means yellowish. But the older indigenous languages, uh, they're mm words, aren't they? They're like, like uh, mel and med and, and meli and miele and from the ancient Indo-European root. So they're mm words, mm honey, mm medicine. Yeah. And also, also in the old Welsh, you know, it relates to the words for the mind and med and med and thought and meditation and and uh, contemplation. So there's this lovely link between medicine and mead and the mind and the bardic tradition and the drinking of um, entheogenic brews that contain uh, many different types of hops over the you know and medicines. I was just reading last night. There was a what was it? What was I reading? I was reading a book. Uh, there was a time in history where the, the Puritanicals, the Puritans, banned every single kind of hops, apart from the one that, you know, gives you bruised droop and puts you to sleep, you know, kind of thing. And, 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 and there were so many other different styles of hops that were used before that era. And they took, you know, took a few years of making that decision. And many of them were uplifting stimulants that would keep the church ale going for like three days and three nights, you know, keep, keep, keep these festnods, the festnods that you have in Brittany or the, or the, or the similar festivals that you have down in Cornwall or the, or the kind of, you know, the, these, these gatherings that people would, would have at certain saints days, which were kind of vestiges of the older um, holy days. The saints days are really popular because everyone gathered together, had a bit of a drink and a bit of a dance, you know, and, and made, made merry. And so there's so a lot of these old drinks, uh, and these old brews and these old herbs had kind of, you know, were like the ancient kind of disco biscuits of the kind of time, you know, and and there, were, there was there was a lot more to the to the medicine than just you know curing yourself from a headache or gout or or you know whatever what you know or, or whatever it might be. And uh, so yes, yeah, so I've done a lot of research into the methaglins, and there's some lovely old books and lovely recipes as long as your arm and you can see some of these recipes like contain you know about seven different roots and 12 different herbs and a few spices and and of course they always use spring water or they boil um ditch water <laughs> or sometimes use rainwater. yeah so but experimented a lot with with brewing and which is a kind of apotherapy in a way as well definitely yeah Reed and do you know when somebody say if you put your head on the hive, what kind of hive is it, or do you have? Because you know if you're like, do, do they, do you have something above the hive that doesn't properly hit the hive? In the bee bedroom. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it looks like a sauna. You walk in and there's a like a bank of okay. wooden beds, and underneath that are the bees. Their entrances are on the outside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there are vents in this kind of sauna bed thing, and there are kind of like futon mattresses on top. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and then there are pipes that go directly into the hives with these kind of sleep apnea masks with a valve in so you're not breathing your air your out breath into the bees it's just going into the room and yeah you can, you can hear them Maybe. especially in the summertime when they're like fanning you know uh, and uh, driving moisture off the nectar I yeah, have so one... like a hammock behind mine <laughs> okay behind the air comes out yeah 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 they're magical. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so, what what kind of hive do you have? 
the conventional one. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm really interested. Like I've been reading a lot about other ways and just intrigued, you know. And I saw one just a few weeks ago in like a big, huge beech tree, and I was just like, could not stop looking at it. You know, I was so in awe. And yeah, yeah, um, because I would love to. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that was my first time seeing them in an actual tree, you know, like you see yeah. them in everything, but like I'd never seen one in a tree, you know, um, so that was pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. Um, and your like your druidic ways, do you meet up in the grove frequently and or how does that work? We had a Beltane ceremony here. Oh, fab. Last weekend, the weekend before last. Yeah, and there are folks around and about Oxford Way, and I'm involved in various different groups, and and yes, yeah, quite active. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Is there anything else um you'd like to share about your work that you might like people to know about or get involved in? Uh, what can you get involved in? You can, I mean, yes, do look at the Beasts for Development website and check out their work. Uh, they're a wonderful charity. It's beastsfordevelopments.org. And also this year is the 400th anniversary, I've already mentioned it, of Charles Butler's book, The Feminine Monarchy. So when he was, you know, when he was growing up, I don't know, he grew up in a really, where they're kind of, patriarchal the patriarchal is really kind of hammering um feminism of of, of females you know so that when he was like the age of 11 like the biggest witch trials ever recorded in triers were, were happening you know and, and when he was i guess well you know just before he was born queen elizabeth i was excommunicated from by the Pope of Rome, you know, and before that, of course, you had the, the the all those acts in England that kind of meant that the monarch became the head of the church here, here and all that kind of stuff. So he was surrounded, you know, surrounded by these really strong women. Of course, then Queen Elizabeth had that big to do with Queen Mary of Scots, and and then she was eventually executed. So, so as he was growing up, there were these these really strong uh, British queens. Uh, battling it out and at the same time there were these you know then James I came along and and then he started persecuting witches in Scotland and and, and witch trials started to happen here so there's this there's this there's this time where there was this, this great female strength and that kind of when that went away kind of all, the, all these kind of young kings came up and started to kind of like hammer the the feminine somehow you know whether it was witch trials or whether it was like king philip of spain like just in 1623 he closed all of the brothels in in spain you know that which was kind of like you know whatever your moral outlook on the sex industry is it was like it was woman's work and it was woman's livelihood you know in the era and it was woman's power in a way and and so there's this great sort of hammering of of the feminine and the female in this time but but right you know in this humble vicar this humble little dude uh, uh for his love of bees wrote this book called uh, The Feminine Monarchy that just drops this little bit of 
um, feminism, this little bit of medicine into this era. And uh, and he did. He wrote, first wrote it in 1609. He didn't think anybody would read it. And then I guess publishing got more and more popular, and and he he became a chorister at Oxford, and he and and, and he got into that kind of world, and 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 then he ended up a vicar in Wotton St Lawrence in 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 Bark in Hampshire, this tiny little village, you know, and he kept his bees there in skeps, and he just and he was writing about it, and he and he developed this book in 1623, you know, 400 years ago to be bigger and better. And right at the heart of this book, he composed a four-part harmony uh, for bees, you know, inspired by bees. It was onomatopoeic that has a, that uh, contained the sounds of the, of the queen's piping, like do, 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 sort of noise, you know, the virgin queens, they make this noise when, they, when they're getting ready to, to fly in the hatch. And when one of them has hatched. And, and so uh, right at the heart of this book had this, this, this music and he would, quote all the ancient manuscripts but he was also writing and and dismissing what they were saying saying well that's wrong you know because he was writing from observation and from experience as a beekeeper he wasn't writing as a kind of latin scholar or as a kind of greek scholar he was writing just as a humble little beekeeper um heralding the feminine and, the, and then his amazonian kind of strength of the bees and uh, and it's just full of brilliant quotes upholding the the the, the the female monarchy is the best and, and the, and the hard work that they do. And this kind of, so this kind of little bit of medicine just dropped into the, into the kind of this great era of, of oppression of woman. And, and now 400 years later, you know, it's, it's, I guess the ripples have just kind of, kind of spread. But before that people, people didn't even realize that the, well, some people did, you know, but he was enforcing the fact that that big bee in the middle was a queen. It wasn't a Rex, you know, it, it was a, it was a, a mother. It was a mother bee. So this year, at the, at the church where he was pastor in Wotton St. Lawrence, there's a 400th anniversary, two days on the 19th and 20th of August. There is a, an event there where we've got um, this amazing choir, Stile Antico. I just heard them on, I was just driving, I just heard them on Radio 3, bizarrely. Uh, they're going to be performing this madrigal, this four-part harmony. And uh, I'll be there, there'll be many other charities there and lots of speakers there we're going to have um so he was known charles butler became known as the father of english beekeeping and we're going to have some of the slovenian the president of the slovenian beekeeping society is coming along who campaigned for world bee day to happen on the 20th of may because that's the birthday of anton Janser, who was a famous slovenian beekeeper who became known as the father of european beekeeping so there's a kind of um that happening this year <laughs> so and i'll just go out and get a copy of the book you know and and, uh, cool. and start learning about this this ancient manuscript it's one yeah. of the first one of the first books in, in the english language on solely dedicated to beekeeping wow that, that's happening this year it's happening at the same time as a wonderful festival as well which is sold out but i just want to publicize this event because it's just a, a really magical event it's something called the uh, medicine festival which i've uh been part of since it's sort of in a beginning and um which just happens to be in the same neck of the woods so i'm so lucky to be involved in those two events mm. uh, and i'll be talking about druidry and, and giving workshops on mead and medicine and and, and musical things and other things at the, at the medicine festival this year 
Uh, but there are lots of satellite events that happen around the Medicine Festival, and it generates money to help indigenous uh, communities that are suffering due to climate change or, or deforestation or whatever around around this this planet. What I was going to tell you about that's probably enough, isn't it? That's a lot. That's a lot to to know. Yeah, <laughs> I actually was just going to ask you one small thing about like the, the why you did the Iron Age thing, or just like a little ah, summary, a little yeah. summary, because I'm intrigued. I was I was quite involved in what we used to call Druid camps, and it's the Order of Bards, Obates and Druids. And many, many people are becoming interested in Druidry and, and the kind of pagan path. Many young people, you know, there was a big kind of wave of, when I, when I, when I was like in my 20s, there was a big kind of wave of people becoming interested in getting initiated and, and training as a Bard and an Obate and a Druid. And, and it's really good to see another wave of that happening now. You know, people have looked all over the world for meaning and 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 spiritual uh experience and religious experience and and there's there's you know which is great and wonderful to learn a bit of everything um, but there's but there's also a, a a a really good sense of well-being and sense of identity and sense of health and sense of belonging that comes from honoring the traditions of the, not just the place, but your, but your ancestors and, and, and the place that you find yourself. And I think that's important for, for the kind of highly mechanised Western society that is uprooted a bit and is divorced from nature a bit to kind of then rediscover and re-kind of root into these ancient traditions that, uh, that have a lot of wisdom within them. Mm. And that have kind of some, you know, have kind of died or, or kind of been oppressed and suppressed and, and and have gone you know back into the ground but, I, but i've been having a, a, a brilliant resurgence in the last you know sort of well 100 years 400 years if you look at some of the you know druid revivalist things uh yeah so so i would, I would encourage people to um to look towards the order of bards obates and druids they're the healthiest most vibrant druid and the only druid order that i can vouch for and their website is is druidry.org and you can look at that and you can you can train or become initiated or just enjoy the website and find a local group near, near you and the uh the the uh chosen chief is uh recently changed who was a chosen chief and it's now a, an irish woman called Ema burke and uh, she's quite active within Ireland, I believe, and maybe yeah, maybe I've actually had, had her on like the that. podcast. Have you? Okay, great. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Have, yeah. So we don't. So we don't need to talk about the the, the order of bars of and Druids too much because you've already had. Well, I I just yeah I was just so you did the Iron Age stuff. Yeah, so, so I was on a Druid, yeah, so I was on a Druid camp. Okay. Many years ago, uh, must have been nineteen ninety nine or something, nineteen ninety eight. Not far from here, just just a few miles away from here. Yeah, and a lovely man called Professor Ronald Hutton uh, would always come. Still does he's you know still an active um, sort of member of the order, and he would come and give talks at the camps. And he came along one time and he had this bit, these bits of paper from. He's a professor of history at Bristol University. He had these bits of paper saying. Uh, from BBC Bristol, saying that you know if anybody wants to get towards a volunteer for a project to live in Iron Age conditions, um, get in touch. 
so <laughs> so i was sort of interested people you know people looked at me and they thought they thought i lived in a hedge anyway because i had you know long dreadlocks and i was always barefoot and i'd roll around in the ashes of the fire at the end of the camp you know and, and just kind of sprung up out of the other world and everybody think i went back to the other world you know afterwards so, uh, <laughs> and uh so I was used to kind of living outdoors and living with the elements and, and, you know, kindling fires and all that stuff and tracking and stalking and being close to nature. That was part of my, part of my upbringing, part of my life. And, but I didn't apply to it. And then, and then a friend, an old ex partner, um, she said, well, she said, why don't we apply together as a family, like me and her and her daughter? She had like a, she must have been, her daughter must have been five or six at the time. Because, because she, uh, she knew that they were looking particularly for some families to, to take part in this, this project. And uh, so I said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. And I had a knowledge of herbs and herbalism and they wanted someone who was like an expert in, ancient british religion you know druids and stuff so we kind of fitted the bill but we didn't get accepted uh and then they approached me independently because it was a whole i can't i'm not sure if this is the right subject. i think a family did get accepted accepted but then they had to drop out due to a death in the family uh and so they approached me as a single man because they had some other single women there. So they approached me as a single man to sort of come along. Maybe they were doing a bit of matchmaking. And uh, because they wanted someone with the kind of druidic knowledge and knew who knew a bit about herbs. So, so, so I said, yeah, okay, great, I'll do it. And we weren't allowed to learn anything about the place. We weren't allowed to research the place. And so, you know, so we went into it not knowing what was going to happen. I was thinking, oh, is, is it going to be some kind of survival situation? Are we going to have to, like, build the houses ourselves? And what's going to happen? Where are we going to, you know? But I was used to that. I was up for it. And then when we got there, we met all these people. And we, we stepped into this reconstructed Iron Age village that was built on the original post holes and we were cooking on the original hearth fires and we had a, a grain store full of dried peas and beans and enough kale uh, to, you know, you could eat enough kale for it to live on for a year and we had goats for milk and we had um, pigs and cows and uh, geese and hens and we had honey and we had a wood store full of wood and I thought this is going to be a doddle you know I had a forge uh, and it was, just, it was just amazing and the furniture and clothing and and so I just like completely relaxed into it and I didn't want to leave it only lasted seven weeks and I really didn't want to leave at the end of it I'd, and and I had such a strong coming home experience that to live that close to the elements I, I this was before I had a mobile phone but it was around the time of mobile phones first starting in sort of 90 from my friends getting them anyway and, and, and uh, so we lived without electricity we didn't have any glass and you know you weren't looking through a window at the world we were always in the world cooking a half fire in the center just made you know and and doing it in a place where the spirit was so strong because the, the ancestors were there you know you just walk out at night time you just see these things and, and one evening i was sat opposite the fire um, Jody, whose father took part in 
a similar project in the 1970s called Living in the Past. Uh, her and her brother came along as, as a kind of legacy, and a few other of the of the children from the older project. She was sat on one side of this hearth fire, and I was sat on the other side. And this, and this kind of, it was almost like lightning or something. This kind of bright light just kind of came down and, and just boom, and sort of went into the fire in between us. And and uh, and I said, "What well, did you see that?" She said, "Yeah, what was that?" And and it, so there's like all these really interesting, strange, mystical experiences were happening. And we were kind of courting as well at times. So there's, there's a lot of kind of, you know, there's this uh, this really strong presence. And uh. I was going through the ovate grade at the time. I don't know if you know much about the the druid system, but the ovate grade is the is where you work with your ancestors and you know and with the ancient spirits of the forest, and and you're getting to the healing arts, and you work a lot in the other world. So you've got a foot in that world as, as well as a foot in this world, and you do a lot of spiritual work, otherworldly competence, and and those kind of things, and. and and it just so happened that living in the Arnage village was was like a few miles away from where my maternal grandmother grew up and lived. And so there's this whole other Welsh ancestral connection to the place. And also whilst I was there, my my Scottish grandfather died and I was allowed out for one day. I was allowed to go to the funeral. So and I I um, insisted on going in my Iron Age clothes. <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to get out, and I didn't want to like change into kind of normal clothes. So they made me take a camera. <laughs> so I had to get like a train to London, and then change, and then get a train to Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire, in this kind of you know, in, in this Iron Age, in these Iron Age clothes <laughs> with my mead horn and that kind of thing. And that yeah, that experience changed my life. It really did. I realised how it was a real coming home experience. I realised how divorced I was from the natural world, and everybody is in our culture today, you know, and how just living with a fire as your heat source and your your way to cook your food and your lighting in the evening, uh, and not going anywhere, you know, not going further than you could walk for seven weeks. I didn't get in a car for seven weeks, didn't get into any kind of machine apart from that one trip out, which is close to the end of the project, to that funeral, to my grandfather's funeral and back again. I didn't, you know, none of us uh, were looking at a machine, talking to a machine, driving around in a machine, washing our clothes in a machine, uh, whatever, you know, having our food cooked by a machine. It was just such a coming back to organism you know uh, and less mechanism more organism kind of became my mantra for a while after that you know and also text we didn't look at any text you know, so we weren't we didn't read anything for seven weeks we didn't see a road sign or an advert that always nagging away at your subconscious all the time you know so so you know like like art is the root of uh, like the magic is the root of all art, isn't it? Every every art form is a magic spell that changes your consciousness or or, or goes into your subconscious somehow. Whether it's a a great um, you know play at the theatre or whether it's a a piece of music that that relaxes you or, or or uplifts you or whether it's an advert that gets you to buy something you didn't really want or need. You know they're all acts of magic, and so so just to be in this space where the magic was pure mother nature's magic you know purer 
but of course a lot of culture as well you know we're we're not just nature we're 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 a fantastic culture and we were dying things different colors you know we died with woad and when we're you know we're doing lots of storytelling lots of rituals and ceremony and 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 just falling out with each other and getting on with each other and all that kind of stuff happened you know so uh making baskets and we made iron we made all sorts oh yeah it was a, it was just a fantastic project and what but was the result it was closer to home it was closer to mother nature being home so it was like being i guess like uh since then i've met uh, and are friends with a man called bruce parry who traveled around the world for a tv program called tribe and 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 it was so it was a bit like kind of what he did like but niche and nerdy british way you know but we didn't have our tribe to go and join we had to just kind of live in these reconstructed places and kind of just feel into what it must have been like and what the culture how the culture was and living in the round and it's just something else in itself and and, and having the hearth fire in the middle and of course i knew the stories and i knew the folklore and i knew about the, the sort of druid wisdom and was trying to trying to color and trying to maybe sort of put in the bits of the jigsaw that weren't there and and we had the artifacts we had the artwork and we had the clothing and the, and some of the crafts and, and I, think we did clothes, job. I think we did a good job what were the clothes made of wool and linen oh, yeah so, so like you know sort of woven checker work woolen tunics and and, and linen and we did you know we 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 turned a few hides and uh before that, not long before that, I'd been living in a vegan housing cooperative in West Wales, <laughs> and then, and then uh, so to then be butchering animals uh, and uh, <laughs> and getting into, you know, what you can make out of their bones and what musical instruments you can make using the horns and the, and the wood and and using their brains to turn hides and all that kind of stuff was a, was good. It was really grounding for me. It really put brought me into the into the world and the material earthy way. And will the results, like, was it for, were the results of the whole thing or is it used for anything now? Oh, yeah, it became a TV programme. The results were okay. disappointing, I suppose. It was a... Oh, so I can watch it? Uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> it was called Surviving the Iron Age. Okay. And they just, you know, you could see that they were just trying to be sensationalist. So, like, I remember one day we had a woman living with us. She was... Uh, to she was a, a camera woman and she was part of our community there were 17 of us and she would sort of set things up like a so we'd be build we'd be boiling a really big pan of water you know for a bath or for something and then you know, someone come in, well, why don't you just put some eggs in there you know to uh to boil the eggs at the same time so okay yeah good idea then they'd film it and then on program it'd be like well look how silly they are trying to boil these eggs in such a massive amount of water you know or or um or they'd say, oh, Chris, can you just go and, just for this shot, can you just go and, like, break up all those twigs with this axe, you know, which is a big sort of fallen tree. So I'd go from whacking this sort of fallen tree with an axe, you know, and then we'd sort of just film that. You know, they would never do that. Or, or they'd ask us to to slaughter a cow, and they'd have, like, Barry Cunliffe, the kind of professor of, of archaeology and expert on the Iron Age, saying, well, they'd have never killed a cow, you know. And, and then they'd ask us to do all these, all these really, really kind of, bizarre things just so they could film it and, and and get some sensationalist kind of footage out of it and they asked us to choose a chief at the beginning and so uh and there were two families w which kind of fell out uh and then two women had an argument these two sort of matriarchs had an argument uh 
and they then it which lasted two or three days and they made it last you know made it look as if it lasted a whole month stringing it out through different episodes and uh but they had to you know they, they were they had, had to compete with other channels i suppose but that was disappointing that uh, there were a few good episodes i think but the the community that that gelled and the work that we did uh was so much more the experience that we had was just so much more than this than the, than the series but it was good fun i suppose the music was quite cool and and uh and sexy uh, and uh it was <laughs> it was good fun. It was good fun. The program was is worth watching. I don't know if you can. I don't know how you'd watch it. Yeah. Uh, today it did it did travel the world a bit. Did go around a bit and uh, maybe sparked a few chat groups and things like that. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I really didn't want to leave at the end of it. And and so now I st- stepped out of that and couldn't go back into a normal house. And so I started building things and I realized a friend of mine was a school teacher. He said, Oh, Chris, come and talk about your experiences. And then I, I worked in schools for a bit, you know, as an iron age man in schools, turning kids into iron age people, becoming tribes. <laughs> and, then, and then I got into building iron age roundhouses and ancient technologies and building, you know, ecological buildings and got into all the ancient technologies and the bushcrafts and stuff. And, that. but then already, you know, bees became my kind of vocation. And then I kind of focused on, on the kind of on the on the bee law and the and the druidic side of it and the and the medicinal side of it and the and the, the methaglins and the brewing. Um, it's mad when you you like I find like when you kind of leave the kind of normal way of life when you go into this other way like for me and I see what other people is that like you just want to go into everything like I'm just like I want to do that I want to do that I want and your mind is just so like in that learned space of feeling like kind of so excited about life and learning all these different things and like in that open space and yeah it's nice to be involved in a lot of things yeah so much there's so much traction there's so much traction (laughs) in the real world Mm. and and coming out of that i mean here we are looking at each other on a a computer you know abstracted slightly but we can see each other we can see our facial expressions so there's a sort of human connection here isn't there yeah but but i've got got a really anti-books for a while and i think well books are just written by people who've remembered a slight little bit of how to live and are read by people who've like, like forgotten, you know, and why do you have books anyway? And text just abstract you. As soon as you're lo- looking at a text and reading it, you're not in the world, you're somewhere else. You're off in your head or you're off wherever this person's writing about, you know, whatever this person's writing about. And you're, sort of, you're abstracted slightly, not really here. Mm. And I felt like that was part of, that's been part of the picture of our separation from the natural world. Escapism, uh, isn't it? Yeah, but it's also you know a way to process information and knowledge and and become really highly skilled at something. Uh, but it but what it did it kind of stopped us being so much of a community. I think. Yeah. It stopped us. You know, Definitely. like that. Yeah. Much cooler to learn and be in a group. You know. Yeah, and that's what I would love. That's what I would absolutely love. What was and. Uh, if that project could happen like permanently, I would absolutely love that. And I'd be up for it. And, and I know friends that would be up for it too. If, if, if there could be like an Iron Age village built and permanently inhabited, uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a bit extreme, is it a bit extreme? But I think, I think it could, would be a valuable experience and a valuable project. Uh, you know, it would involve 
a lot of skills of you know animal husbandry and, and uh um of course, would you be the chief so <laughs> i don't know what i would be i'd maybe be just one of the one of the elders sat you can't sit in the corner can you in the roundhouse but one of the elders <laughs> that circle you know you, you can't you can't hide away in a circle you, you you're, you're present you know there's no one's you, there's an equality about it mm-hmm. in the roundhouse you Lovely, know it's not like it's not like like a you know like a kind of adversarial politics of the house of commons is like there's a line down the middle there's all these people sat there opposite all these people there you know and if you're sat in the round there's none of that you know like if you think about every lecture theater in the country it's like one learned person there and all the people looking at them you know yeah it doesn't happen in the round you know there's a certain equality and and leveling I mean, maybe i'm glorifying the past i don't know but the building's around maybe it's just because it's easier to build a round building out of round wood you know and thatch it that way but, but it's nicer about... anyway the curve is much more yeah appealing like when there's sharp corners it's like oh you know that's right and then coming home you know out of the woods or from down by the river up to the hill fort to these kind of almost like breast-like mounds you know uh with smoke coming out the top grassy and and you know they're gonna be warm inside it was like coming home to this to something organic and yeah. completely different to driving up onto a you drive and getting out of your car and slamming your I door. I have a thing now, like thick walls, you know, like the old walls. Like I'm like, oh my God, they're so thick. I'm like, how big are they? And it's like a big, <laughs> I was thinking about a tree as well. When I see a tree that's so massive, like it's that strength, isn't it? Because like I live in a shed and like the walls are quite big and I'm just like, oh, I love this one. <laughs> but then when you go into a modern house you're like oh it looks so weak you know it looks so like yeah and where are the gardens there's, there's so much new building happen up and down the, the, the road here the corridor rafer 20 corridor and i'm looking at these houses driving past with it they've got no garden they, 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 suddenly the, the gardens are disappearing from these houses like everybody had a garden everybody grew food you know even in my grandparents era people needed gardens and now they're building like just your know, everyday house with a kind of tiny little thing of a or not even a garden and it's like what I, i'm huh. i know it's mad and then people can't afford it. them anyway you know people are like, What's, what is going on I, I was I, I went through a phase of well being really impatient for like you know the sky falling down and the sea rising i wanted to happen yesterday you know so that we could just get back to these old ways but maybe it won't happen you know, maybe it's just a just that kind of Freudian death drive, wanting this big collapse so that something so that I can glorify the past and then glorify the future. But actually, it's just about being here now and acknowledging what we have got. And we've got Zoom, and we've got <laughs> and, <laughs> and we've got like podcasts. these conversations and, and, are yeah, happening. Yeah. You know, these conversations are happening, and I've seen way less chemical sprays this year. Like I've seen so many flowered gardens and no mome. And I think it's changing slowly, but there are times of the month where I get so angry. I don't want to be around humans. I'm like, we're the only species that are that stupid that we would wreck our own home. And I get so upset about it. And then I'm like, don't, and nobody come near me for a few days until I'm ready to come back to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. anyways, sure. We'll get there. Yeah, I did make a podcast. You mentioned that uh, before we started recording. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mention that. I suppose it's, it's, it's all about bees, called Living Being, the two E's. Super. Um, 
I can put it in the notes. But I've never, I'd have never done it off my own back. It was, I was invited to, to take part in it. Yeah. Uh, sort of habitually a Luddite, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, now our house is full of musical instruments, so rather than listen to music, I guess we prefer to play it. <laughs> uh, but then again, you know, when I'm tired at night, like last night, last night, I was storytelling at the weekend and last week in Bristol for the literature festival on Sunday all day, storytelling all day long. And we got home, kids said, Dad, can you tell us a story? <laughs> and I was like, no. And then, and then last night, uh, same thing. Dad, can you tell us a story? And it was, I was sort of, it was late and I was tired. And I, was sort of, I just sort of, uh, and, and I just sort of went into into my room and sort of laid down and and there were these nice books actually and I just opened this book and there's some lovely stories and so I ended up going going into their room and sort of telling them a couple of stories. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. It's changes happening, isn't it? But the world is becoming more and more mechanized. Also, yeah. you know, with drones and AI and all that kind of stuff, and and I guess, uh, yeah. It's wow. scary how children growing. I didn't grow up with a mobile phone. I don't know about you. I, I, uh, and then I, you know, got my first mobile phone when I was like twenty-five or something. And <laughs> um, but now it's constant, isn't it? It's, con- it's a constant presence yeah. in one's life. How do you break that habit? Yeah, it's always there. That little dopamine hit. Yeah, but good for listening to podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So this podcast will be out soon. But um, yeah, thank you for coming on today. Great to chat to you. And I'm sure people will love the stories. Um, yeah, so thank you for your time. A pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Nice to meet you. Yes. Um, so folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, give it a share. And if you can support, please go on to patreon.com slash catch caught. And I'll talk to you all very soon. Slán.